1: Uh, Growing up in Glasgow, we didn't often get to read a lot of other Scottish writers in school. And so when I was a young man, I had to go out in search of that. And and that's almost my own social history.
0: Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. My name is Samir Rahim. Today we're talking to author Douglas Stewart about his Booker Prize winning novel Shuggy Bain. Shuggy Bain tells the story of a young boy growing up with his troubled family in working-class Glasgow during the 1980s, and it has been inspired, as we'll learn I think, by some of Douglas's own experiences. It is his debut novel and was turned down by no less than 32 publishers. I can say that as one of the judges for the Booker Prize this year, I've read this book three times in the last four months or so, and I can vouch that it is a remarkable work. It's immersive, involving, funny, and moving too. And from the moment I started reading it, I just had a feeling this might be the one. And fortunately, my fellow judges agreed with me. Thanks for joining us, Douglas.
1: Thank you for having me, Samir.
0: So last week was quite a week, wasn't it? So your book was a finalist for the National Book Awards in the US, which is a major prize, which was announced on Wednesday, I think. And then on Thursday, it won the Booker. How does it all feel?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm delighted and I'm overjoyed, but it does feel ever so slightly unreal. Uh, It was a very emotional week for me. And actually, I went into the Booker having submerged myself in all the other finalists' work and reading them and in awe of it and feeling jealous sometimes of the power of those voices. And so I wasn't expecting to be selected as the winner. But when I was, I was delighted and then suddenly just had this out-of-body experience. Uh, I was just blown away.
0: It's interesting that you read the other books on the shortlist. Did you find there was any... Uh, were you reading the list in a way to to see what the judges were looking for or did you see any commonalities between them and your own work or was it just a, a great variety?
1: I think first and foremost because everything for everybody has been happening at a distance this year, I felt like the Booker shortlisting, the longlisting then the shortlisting was such a moment in my life and I wanted to be as present as possible even though I'm so far from everyone and so reading the works was just about being present in the moment first and foremost and and getting to, because I haven't met my fellow finalists, I think this is an unusual year, probably one of the only years that will ever have happened. And so I wanted to understand them and feel as close to them on this shared journey as possible. But I was amazed at how diverse the voices were, but not only in terms of the stories they were telling, but just the regions they came from, the perspectives they brought to the page. And, and every single one of those books enriched my life in a different way.
0: Yeah, speaking as a judge, it was definitely in lockdown, having another a novel to read every evening was was definitely like meeting a new person every evening and and, and sometimes that went uh well sometimes that went not so well and sometimes it was you just sort of indifferent really but you did you did have an um, you know i still have all these voices um, in my head even after all these months It's it's quite something yeah,
1: I agree. I can't actually forget um Tambudzai from C.C. Dangaremba's book This Mournable Body and I found all the readings actually that the old Vic actors did on the day I was, I said somewhere else that I sat through the rehearsals and they actually made me cry. They were so powerful. And some of the other finalists were looking at me like, why is that guy crying? What's so emotional for him?
0: But it was an incredibly momentous moment and I just
1: was sort of carried away by it.
0: And so much has been made that you're I think the second Scottish writer to win the prize, which seems you know, given it's been going for more than fifty years, quite surprising. But I think James Kelman was um, the first, and I've seen Nicholas Sturgeon's been merrily tweeting about your prize, and it's been a celebratory moment. Does that does that feel important to you?
1: It it was it's a hugely important uh, thing for me. James Kelman's been a, an enormous influence on my work. Uh, How late it was! How late was, was one of the first books I read uh, that where I saw my own people, my own dialect, my own city on the page. Uh, Growing up in Glasgow, we didn't often get to read a lot of other Scottish writers in school. And so when I was a young man, I had to go out in search of that. And and that's almost my own social history. And so um, James Kelman changed so many things for me. Uh, It was wonderful to get the... I mean, the Booker Judges choose a book. They don't choose everything that comes behind the book, the person, the... politics that perhaps I'd bring to it. It is a selection of a book, but it's undeniable that it's done an awful lot, this selection, for the people of Scotland, for regional voices, for queer writers, and certainly for Nicola Sturgeon. She sent me the loveliest note that just uh, said how proud Scotland was, and that meant a lot to me. Uh, I'm an immigrant now. I was born and raised in Glasgow. All my family are still on the south side, but I live in New York. And part of writing Shuggy Bain was about trying to connect with Glasgow and trying to tie two parts of myself back together. So to have done Scotland proud in this way means a huge amount to me personally, just as a human being.
0: Some might say that it doesn't portray Glasgow in the best of lights. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's violence, abuse, alcoholism, and the difficult side of um, life there. But reading the book, I did sense also there's a sort of nostalgia, perhaps, for the sheer largeness of life, you know, the big characters, um, the comedy that, uh, that slips into tragedy and back again. It felt like that uh, you were certainly recreating a world that you have a lot of fondness for.
1: Absolutely. And the distance for me brought clarity, but it also brought longing. Uh, you know there was violence, there was misogyny, we know that addiction swept into the city when unemployment went up to the high 20%. And I wrote the book not necessarily considering what readers would think because I didn't know, you never know if your work will ever reach readers. So I wrote it for the characters and it was important for me that if I was going to put difficult things on the page I spoke about them as clearly and as honestly and with as much humanity as I could Uh, because that gives dignity to the situation. I think sometimes if you pull away or you turn away or you concern yourself with what the reader thinks and not what the character is going through, then you have to ask yourself who you're writing for. And I was always writing from a point of trying to show the truth in the situation and how hard it was, not just for the Bain family, but for, for many good, honest families across the city at that time. But it's also part of the Glaswegian spirit to talk about difficult things bluntly or honestly, And, you know, it's a huge inspiration to me. I'm always inspired by the people of Glasgow and how many things can often sit very in contrast or cheek by jowl, how there can be violence at times, but then that can come with huge tenderness and empathy, how even within moments of sadness or there can be humour. And I wanted to put that on the page in a way that felt sort of full of life for the reader.
0: And you absolutely do that. That's one of the things that... um, and struck me about the book, the sort of the largeness of life about it. Um, am I right in thinking that when you were growing up, books weren't um, necessarily a big part of you know home life, and reading wasn't something that was encouraged?
1: That's right. I mean, we—I grew up in a house with no books, and that actually I don't think was that unusual for the time or the place. Um, I don't remember many of my friends also reading, but I sometimes tell the anecdote of we actually had tons of books in the house, and they were all very neat and orderly, but they were the. The sort of the vinyl VHS covers that we'd covered video cassettes and it looked like a James Joyce or something, and then you would get four episodes of Dallas instead. And books were something there was so much disruption, I think, in the community. There was disruption in my home life with my mother's addiction that I couldn't even concentrate. You it's such a luxury. It's a very quiet luxury, but it's such a luxury if children can grow up and really lose themselves in books, because you need an awful lot of peace. In yourself and a lot of peace around you to be able to concentrate on reading, and I just didn't have that until I was about seventeen, and then at about seventeen um, after my mother died, I was living by myself trying to finish high school. I had some really influential English teachers who started to put books in front of me. It was too late for me perhaps to go into English as an academic pursuit. It was maybe seen as something that boys from the south side of Glasgow, you know, don't do, and I went instead into the trade of textiles, but. That moment when I'm 17 and books start to appear in my life was a pivotal moment for me.
0: There might not have been books, but it, it seems like there were storytellers, people who, who told you stories. And I, I'm wondering about the challenge of trying to set down in what you describe as a literary novel, people who don't themselves read books, but um, have a, maybe a sort of oral talent, or, and, and, and the difficulties maybe in trying to transfer those voices onto the page.
1: Yeah, I think Scottish people are always natural storytellers and Glaswegian patter is part of the charm of the city. When I was writing the book, because I was writing for the characters, I would be quite hard on myself as a writer if I felt I was running away with far too many metaphors or making the prose far too flowery that would limit the accessibility of the book or leave some of the people I was trying to put on the page behind. Uh, I've always had a wrangled with a a personal problem about accessibility to literature because I never felt that books were for me growing up and um, part of that was because they weren't ref- reflective of my people whether it was queer or Scottish or working class on the page but another part of that was just sometimes it can come with such elitist snobbery and how we talk about books um, in the media and so when I was writing it I wanted it to be as beautifully written a story as I could manage but also to try and think about the boy that I was and would I be able to sort of engage in the book in that way. And so I wanted to do that. But one of the real pleasures of writing, there's, there was two things that really jumped out at me. And the first one is one of the joys of writing a working class story is you get to lean on a chorus of voices because so many people were going through the same situation at the, the same time. There's a collectiveness to working class narratives, I think. And so I enjoyed bringing all these people into the book and showing these themes from different angles. And then writing dialogue um, is one of my absolute pleasures as a writer. And that is the Scots tradition, I think, because we pass so much of our stories uh, verbally to one another. And so I just took a lot, I loved writing dialogue and rewriting it and thinking about how to make as much impact with that as I could.
0: So you had all these memories, some traumatic and and some uh, joyful, which you Decided to write down in sort of fictional form. How did that? How did that start? And what was the journey from you know the germ of the idea of the novel to eventually publication? I think it was quite a long journey, wasn't it?
1: It was. Yeah, I I began writing Shuggy Bain twelve years ago, but it took about ten. I was I worked on it for about ten years, almost ten years. And at first, I sat down and wrote some very small scraps. But there came a point in two thousand and eight where it it started to sort of flood out of me or burst out of me like a rocket. And I realized I had this thing by a leash. And so I sat and I tried not to get in the way of the novel. It came out, uh, what is now the finished novel came out actually out of chronological order. I started on chapter 13, then went to chapter 22 and chapter four. Because I come from the visual arts, I think very visually. And so I saw each of these scenes almost as vignettes or as, as. Uh, cinematic in a way. And I wanted to create them as these really powerful moments that both stood alone and then also worked as a complete novel. But the first draft was full of non sequiturs and it was sort of all over the place and it also ballooned to almost 900 pages of single space. There was, I was so fascinated by all the characters, even the secondary characters, that I wanted to write out their full narratives. And so subsequently over the coming 10 years, it was about refining that and distilling it. The story itself, what happens to Shuggy and Agnes, never really changed in the book from the first draft to the the book that is in readers' hands now. But everything distilled all the way back where I paired it back to the essentials. And uh, I had wonderful um, advice from my editor at the end who just said, I would love to keep the lens on Shuggy and Agnes a little bit more because they're the heart of the book. And when he said that to me, I knew there was other things that could, could fall away to keep the reader in the room with Shuggy and Agnes. But in about 2017, I sent the book out as a manuscript to an agent and it was rejected by a few agents before I signed with one. When she finally sent the manuscript out, and this is in New York, in America, um, she told me it was rejected 20 times. It turns out it was actually rejected 32 times. Uh, she just stopped telling me after a certain point. And, and, you know, rejection is a part of a writer's life. We face it all the time. Uh, We face it from agents, from editors, from magazine subscriptions, from readers, from critics. And so it's an important thing to learn. And anyone listening to this should know that that is something you have to learn as a writer and be okay with. You have to have the perseverance to get through it. But it only took the bravery of one amazing editor in New York to say, oh, I want to publish this. Everyone had a tough time figuring out how to market a story about Glasgow in the 80s. People didn't understand uh, the sort of the social upheaval that was happening, not only in Glasgow, but all across the UK. Um, They didn't understand it in America because we we have been remiss in uh, writing history from that perspective and showing works of literature there. We often focus on how powerful Thatcher was and what was happening to the prosperous parts of society in that time. And we forget to reflect on the working classes and what it did. But it only took one brave editor and Shuggy, as we know it, entered the world. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: I wonder whether your training, um, you said you, you studied textiles and then you're a fashion designer, that's your job, um, um, helped you write the book in some ways. I mean, one of the things I admired about it was not only that you write about clothes very, very well, that's one thing I noticed and then it's then it clicked for me later, um, your, own, your own training, but also there's a formal elegance to it, the way it's stitched together. There's great attention to detail. Did you see any overlap in the creation of the two different sort of art forms that you, that you deal with,
1: yeah, and actually, I tried to um, I tried to work towards my strengths as a writer, and all of those, many of those strengths come from my visual training. I'm I have a background in textiles as well, so I'm very aware of the patience it takes to build something stitch by stitch, or on a very micro level before it can ladder up to something, a much larger tapestry or an embroidery um, of the larger scale, but. I wanted to create as immersive a book as possible for the reader uh, it 's difficult sometimes, I think, to look at things that might be ugly or hard, and i didn 't want to, as a writer to whisk people through and have them gop at it and then return them to their life. I wanted if we were going to follow Shuggy and Agnes for everyone to sit down and really be in the room with the characters. I lent on my. Uh, visual background to do that, to make sure I could describe the sounds and the smells and the textures of the scene and how people were holding themselves. And for me, I wanted that to be the power of the book in a way so that it was such an encapsulating experience.
0: Yeah, the, the formal aspects of the book were the, one of the things that um, uh, I admired particularly uh, about it. I thought it was such an interesting decision that you make. So you have the prologue uh, where you have a slightly older. Uh, Shuggy reflecting on his experiences, but then you go into the perspective of um, the father, Shug, and he is, you know, he's this terrifying taxi driver who's in many ways um, uh, one of the least attractive characters in the whole book. And I wondered whether, uh, you know, why you made the decision to introduce us to this world through his perspective be- before moving on to the other characters.
1: Yeah, um, I wanted to bring Shug in to the beginning of the book because he has such an effect on all the other characters. He almost is the the dynamite that blows a lot of other lives apart. But also, because it's set in the west of Scotland, a lot of the tradition of literature there looks at the post-industrial landscape but from a male point of view. And so Shug was almost important as a narrator to show us the the government changes, the societal changes, the unemployment. Before we really frame the book Uh, from a mother's point of view and from a young queer boy's point of view, who all these things, this backdrop of things would have an effect on, but they would not necessarily have any power to change it. And Shug is also important because, in a way, he is the villain at the beginning of the book that sets things on a very disastrous path, for Agnes especially, and for the children. But then he's mirrored by this other taxi driver that appears later in the book, Eugene. And Eugene roars in almost as though he will be the love and the positive influence that will help Agnes from her sobriety. And I won't uh, spoil it for the readers, but he charges in as a taxi driver, almost like a white knight on a black stallion in this black hackney taxi, which mirrors Shug in some ways. And I wanted to make a comment on how men use women and almost how Agnes has gone from the situation of being something that her father has such an influence on to her husband, to then this man at the end, because society... Didn't know what to do with single mothers or women that didn't have men in the house. You know, it was it was a difficult time then.
0: Yes, there's an amazing scene um, where they Agnes and Eugene go on a, a date to a sort of American themed restaurant, and uh, Eugene is dressed. He's got a sort of pistol by the side, and he's almost dressed like a cowboy. and 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 it seems to me that you know you're not sure whether he's going to be the sort of defender or eventually the person who um, pushes her over the edge that was a a moment where the themes came together but in also a a very humorous way.
1: Yeah the Grand Old Opry is a real institution in Glasgow it's a country and western club and I think it follows that Glaswegian tradition of storytelling because of course country and western music is so based on a narrative and there's a melancholy aspect to it and love and loss and all these things. So Glaswegians and country and Western actually go very well together, oddly. But Eugene, I set up Eugene almost as this archetype of a hero. He is actually known as the sheriff when he goes into the this country and Western club. And we think for a while that he is going to put everything right and he's going to rescue Agnes. But it's a comment on alcoholism and addiction and how actually the only person that can save you if you suffer from that is yourself. And so... In Not to spoil it, but in many ways, Eugene's a red herring.
0: And there's also the, the main character, the character after whom the, the whole book is named. We, we start to hear his voice as he grows up um, quite slowly. And then it, when he starts to speak, then there's a sort of change in the novel, isn't there? There's a s- s- shift in perspective. We get to see things a lot, th- lot more through his eyes. And his early on the book his nascent sexuality is quite an important part isn't it there's a great there's a great bit where he starts collecting the the lager tins which have pictures of scantily clad women on them um and it's all like oh yeah you know chip off the old block he's gonna be a womanizer when he grows up um but the reader and characters in the book well actually there's something else going on there um and that development um it changes the whole texture of the book in some ways
1: that's right. I didn't, I didn't want Agnes to be the only soul in the book that was being isolated. I wanted it to be about these two characters that were clinging to each other, Agnes and their youngest son, Shuggie. And you're right, he's collecting these tenants lager cans and sort of fascinated by the women on the side. And his father thinks he's going to be, uh, he's going to grow up in the mode of him to be this womanizer. And really, Shuggie's drawn to glamour and to beauty and is looking for dollies or that sort of femininity in his life. But Shuggy is very quickly othered by the community around him. He has no idea of himself or his body or what he likes and what it isn't. And even from within his family, people start to say, oh, that boy's no right, you know. Um, And they don't express it in a way that's hugely damning or is wrapped in any religious ideology. It's just he's feminine and precocious and that's going to end badly for him. And then it starts to sort of swell and become the community at large that that, uh, sort of Reject him, but through the book, Shaggy is maturing and coming into his own and facing that isolation and uh, being at home with his mother and then being in the community where he 's not fully accepted. but what starts to be transformative to him is he comes into his own power as all the Bain children do they all have to they 're all moving towards a decision where they take control of their own lives and break away from their mother, but he 's also transformed by the power of female friendship throughout the book several times. He meets young Annie, uh, who is going through similar addiction issues with her father. And then towards the end of the book, he meets his real savior, uh, Leanne, who as well is is struggling at that time. But at the beginning of the book, when we meet him, he's thick with friends who are all these much, much older women who work on the tills in the supermarket where he works. And and so it's about him sort of coming into his own manhood. And we leave him on the brink of that at the end of the book. uh, with a big question hanging over him, I think
0: yes, and he's he's a wonderful character for me um and this is just a personal opinion Agnes was the character who I was most just um astonished and, and drawn to. She sort of elbows herself onto the page and into your imagination she's the sort of charismatic, beautiful, infuriating character um and you manage to you manage to show her in all her complexity and it's it's a it's a remarkable achievement.
1: Thank you very much. That was actually one of the goals of the book. Having grown up, uh, I lost my own mother to addiction, Samir, when I was 16. And having grown up, I saw how quickly society reduced my mother to just one thing. She was uh, she was a drunk, she was an alcoholic, and they didn't manage to see the, the full richness of the human being. So when I was writing the character of Agnes Bain, I wanted to make sure I tried my best to make sure that us as readers would see a woman who was all these things. She was generous. She was spirited. She was flawed. She was hurt. She was defiant. But she was also a mother, a daughter, a lover, an individual, a friend and a foe before she succumbs into the thralls of addiction. And that was, for me, was important because I wanted to remind everybody that there's people suffering at the heart of this and they're multifaceted and they're very real. And then also their addiction is multifaceted. Part of why I chose to keep reflecting, zooming in on Agnes and then zooming out into the society is because lots of, it wasn't, this isn't just a sort of locked room domestic drama where just this one woman is having a tough time. Many people were in crisis. But then also in looking at Agnes through the lenses of her husband and her children and her parents shows how sort of scorching addiction can be uh, to not just the person suffering from it, but from everyone that loves that person
0: yes and she's always trying to keep it together in her own way there's a wonderful moment when she 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 tries to color in the heel of a shoe with a bingo marker or when she's sort of jimmying open the the television meter to get the change so she can spend it uh spend it on drink it, it, it it's some you know it's a world that was, exists in my lifetime and in the country that I I grew up in but it feels like um another world doesn't it
1: Well, actually, I I think that's the thing that's been illuminated at the moment. I thought I'd written about a very specific time and a place, um, Glasgow in the 80s. But I think as we look at society now, we're seeing so many people still left behind. And I think because a lot of the safety net in society is eroding or is constantly being challenged, we see these people less and less. Uh, The thing about the 80s is it was such a collective moment that it was overwhelming that so many people were going through it. But now I think people feel more isolated in pockets in that way. But as you said, the the theme, one of the themes in the book is pride. Agnes has so much self-worth in herself and her pride is almost defiant and becomes the thing that people almost isolate her for uh, or are vindictive towards her because how dare she have this pride in herself. They understand she's disintegrating on on the inside. She They understand that she isn't as poor as they are. But every day she gets up and she puts on the best of clothes. She makes sure she never goes over the door without her makeup done and her hair done, even if she has the shakes from from alcoholism. And I knew so many women like that. That was just uh, how you had to be. You had to take pride in yourself and you wouldn't ever show uh, any other face to the world. And there's a lot of dignity in that.
0: You do, you do write, uh, you know, the book is dedicated uh, to your mother. And obviously, there seems to be a lot of your own mother in the portrayal of Agnes, how would, um, how would she be enjoying your victory, do you think? I think she would see it as her own victory.
1: <laughs> she would have been up and down the street and uh, knocking on every single door, and she would have been so proud, I think. Uh, my mother's been dead for 30 years now, almost 30 years, um, and I miss her. I still miss her. And part of writing this book is a love story to my mother and wanting to conjure her up and have people understand her how as I understood her, as a wonderful person who was deeply hurt and who also had nowhere in society to turn for help. And so I think my mother would be sort of thrilled that she was getting this recognition or that the trauma that we went through together could be turned into art and then that art could be celebrated in such a way uh, as the Booker win. Um, but it was never that my mother herself was voiceless or any woman like her was voiceless because they had these really powerful roaring voices and they were incredibly, uh, enigmatic. It was just that society had no place for them almost. It didn't know, it couldn't look at them. It couldn't hear them. And so when they began to struggle, people, as they do in the book, started to turn away and be like, oh, I'd rather not look at that. And so part of writing the book was about saying, please come look at this
0: and hope that
1: there's more to come from you, more more stories. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm working as
0: hard as I can.
1: Uh, but I, as I said, I've been writing for a, a long time, not necessarily publishing. And so my second novel is complete and I'm excited to share that with the world. I'm always writing about loss and belonging and trying to find your place in society. But as we leave Shuggy on the brink of manhood at the end of Shuggy Bane, I'd wanted to write a totally different story that looked at masculinity Uh, and looked at gentle men uh, or sensitive and kind souls in in incredibly hard places.
0: Well, we'll look forward to that. Thanks, Douglas, so much for joining us and thank you for writing this book. Thank you, Samira. Thanks for joining us this week on The Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next week.